want to say hi. Ward Church, great to have you with us today. It's wonderful to be together for this worship on Sunday. It's hard to believe that today is my final sermon that I will give as a staff member of Ward Church. If you're new with us today or we've never met, my name's Tyler, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to have served on this staff team. I'll be leaving Ward Church at the end of May, and I'll be becoming the lead pastor at Orangewood Church in Orlando, Florida. Rachel and I lived in Orlando for two years, and so we are returning to some friendships we already have there and an opportunity to make new relationships through Orangewood Church. Rachel and I drove up from Houston, Texas, nine and a half years ago in January 2011 to join the staff here. We joined you two weeks before snowpocalypse hit, and I was baptized fully into a Michigan winter. And since then, Michigan has become our home. All three of our kids have been born here. And we have celebrated life with you. We have grieved with you. But this has become our home. This has become the place for me and my family. And I've had the privilege to serve as one of your pastors of this great church, to work with a phenomenal staff team, and to serve Scott and the elders as they sought God's vision for Ward Church. Rachel and I will miss you, and we will be cheering you on from Orlando, where it will be 75 and sunny in January. We pick up today on that hillside 2,000 years ago as Jesus spoke these words from the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe you're watching this morning and, and you're with us for the first time and, and you're feeling a bit of regret that you've missed out and you're wondering, have I missed a lot? And in fact, you have walked in and you have sat down under Jesus's words today at some of the most crucial points. So I want to encourage you with that. But these are sobering words some of the most sobering of all that Jesus said. And everything about this passage will cause us to look a little deeper. I have a question for you. Have you ever been deceived by someone? Tricked, duped, scammed? Well, I remember uh, about 15 years ago, um, I had gone to meet a friend of mine at the Barnes & Noble in my hometown, and they were closing up for the night, and so me and my friend left and ventured out into the parking lot where we continued our conversation. There was a guy who pulled up and uh, parked his car right next to, to mine, and he was about my age, and he began to share this incredibly detailed story of what had tris transpired in his life. You see, he had just gotten in a major argument with his girlfriend, and they had broken up. He had stormed out of the house got into his car and left. But as he was driving away, he realized he was out of gas and that he had left his wallet back at his ex-girlfriend's place. So there he was pleading to me and my friend if we could spare some cash so he did not have to go back to her place to get that wallet. Now about halfway through this story, it began to feel familiar to me. I've met this guy before at, at 
this parking lot where I've heard this same story. And as he was getting to the end of that story, once again, that I had heard two years before, he began to ask us for money. And I had some choice words for him that shocked my friend because my friend had no idea what was going on. But this guy hopped in his car as fast as he could and sped away as far as he could go from me. We've all been there. The scam phone call, the phishing email, the fake news, the very detailed story of an ex-girlfriend in a parking lot at a Barnes and Noble. We've all been there. But here's another question for you. Have you ever deceived yourself? Have you ever tricked yourself? Have you ever been deceived by you? Now, before you rush to answer that question, I want you to know that the data is pretty clear. You have, and you are doing it all the time. Catherine Schultz wrote a book called uh, Being Wrong. And in her book, she talks about the uncanny ability we have to deceive ourselves and this unending ambition we have to be right. She says this, Our indiscriminate enjoyment of being right is matched by an almost equally discriminate feeling that we are right. Schultz is saying, everyone loves to be right so much about everything that we will lie to ourselves about anything. So we believe that we are right. Everyone does this. Well, everyone but me. Of course. The data is clear that we deceive ourselves into believing things that are not true. And before the psychologists and the sociologists could run experiments to test this phenomenon, Jesus Christ declared on a hillside that this is the common predicament of the human condition. In this passage that was read earlier, Jesus is calling us to see the temptation we have to self-deception. When we stand before Jesus on the judgment day, there will be those who believe they were in, but yet they were out. How could we miss it? Well, Jesus gives us three ways. First, he tells us we can know all the right things and still miss it. Jesus tells us uh, there were these people that were standing before him on the judgment day And they knew all the right doctrine and all the right theology. You see, they began their vindication by saying, Lord. They believed Jesus was God. That he was the true Lord of the world. That he was the master. Early on in our marriage, uh, Rachel and I went to swim with dolphins at Discovery Cove in Florida. It was one of Rachel's dreams in her life to swim with dolphins, and we did it. Because I'm a good husband. But before we swam with the dolphins, uh, we hung out in another park area, in another exhibit with the stingrays. And while we were hanging out there this whole time with these stingrays, I was hanging out right there with Tim Duncan. You may not know Tim Duncan, 
but he's considered one of the greatest basketball players to ever live. Five-time NBA champion, two-time MVP, 10-time first-team All-NBA, considered by many to be the greatest power forward to ever play the game. Yeah, that Tim Duncan. And there we were, hanging out, watching his kids play, laughing and joking as his kids had such a great time with those stingrays. It was so natural as I had always imagined it. Tim and I lived in North Carolina at the same time where he went to college and played basketball at Wake Forest University. He grew up uh, in the Virgin Islands. But the strange thing happened as we moved on from that Stingray exhibit. Tim and his family went off on another exhibit, and he did not even say goodbye to me at all. It, it was like he didn't even know me. And the reality is, he doesn't. You see, I know a lot about Tim Duncan, but I don't know Tim Duncan. We can know a lot about God. We can know the facts about him. We can know the facts about the Bible. But we can miss out on the reality of truly knowing him. We have to have a real encounter with him. The question is, have you? Secondly, Jesus tells us we can express all the right things and still miss it. Jesus tells us uh, these people, they were standing here and they not only said Lord, but they said, Lord, Lord. This was a way uh, in the Hebrew Bible uh, to denote passion and emotion. Uh, it, it's like your exclamation point in English. These people not only knew the right things, but they had the passion to go along with it. This is a very interesting point in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you're watching today and this is your first time, once again, you're joining us on a great Sunday because I can sum up for you this crowd, this audience that is there for the Sermon on the Mount. When you look back through this sermon, Jesus tells us the, there are these two types of people. There are these two types of people that are praying, two types of people who are fasting, two types of people giving to the poor. And what we assume sometimes is that Jesus is trying to separate between two groups of people those who are doing the right things, the good people, and those who are doing the wrong things, the bad people. But when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we see Jesus when he's contrasting, uh, these people are actually all doing the right things. They're all praying. They're all feeding the poor. They all have passion. What we see is Jesus isn't contrasting the good people from the bad people, he's contrasting the good people from Christians. Scott Saul says it this way, there will be two surprises in heaven. The first will be the people who actually end up there, and the second will be the people who don't. Some will even be surprised to see themselves in heaven and perhaps not see their pastors or some other respectable religious person they knew. You may be watching today still on the fence about Jesus and his claims. Or you may be watching even today outright opposed to Christianity. 
And if your issue is about Christians and how they carry themselves, believing they're better than you, believing that they have it all figured out, well, that isn't Christianity that you're rejecting. In fact, Jesus will reject those same people on the last day who cried out, Lord, Lord, because it was just words on the tongue and not a reality of the heart. Lastly, Jesus tells us we can do all the right things and still miss it. Look at these characters in this illustration Jesus gives us. Uh, They stand before the judgment. They unroll the scroll that they have brought with them. And they begin to pontificate all the good things that they have accomplished for God. It says this in verse 22. Uh, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. The scroll is unrolled. And it's a very impressive list of accomplishments. Not only these incredible acts that were performed, but that they did them in the authority in the name of Jesus. They didn't just heal, but they healed under the power and in the name of Jesus himself. This is why some have said this section is, quote, the scariest thing Jesus ever said, unquote. Jesus said, you can know all the right doctrine. You can cry while you pray. You can lift your hands when you sing. You can give to the poor. You can heal with your pinky. And Jesus will say, in the end, I never knew you. Now, Jesus doesn't say, I knew you, and you drifted away. He does not say that. He says, I never knew you. You missed it this whole time. So how can we stand before Jesus on that judgment day with confidence? How do we make sure we don't miss it? Well, it tells us right here in this verse. Right here in this section, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But this section, read this. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There it is. There's the answer. Get to it and you are in. But if we can read that verse and we can be honest with ourselves for maybe the first time this morning, we know we don't live for the will of God very well. And even when we are doing something good, C. John Miller reminds us our motives are always mixed. It's not only that we can't live up to God's wills and standards, but we can't even live up to our own standards. If you don't know me, uh, I like to give a running commentary sometimes when I'm by myself in the car and somebody else is driving horribly. It's it's not something I'm proud of. Uh, I'm confessing it to you right now. But I want you to know, don't worry. I have judged you and you're driving. And one of the things that 
really gets my solitary commentary going more than anything else is when the people in front of me don't use their turn signals. They, they just turn at will. Now, last week, I was driving, and I, I, I've had a lot going on. There's a move coming. There's a pandemic. And I turned into my neighborhood and onto my street. And as, as I was turning onto my street, I realized I had not put my turn signal on. And I looked in the rearview mirror, and the woman behind me was there with her hands out in disgust with her solitary commentary on me. You see, I can't even live up to God's standards. I can't even live up to my own standards. How about you? Now, some of you, I don't have to tell you, you've fallen short. You are blowing it pretty well in this COVID season, and you are fully aware of it. You're upset with your kids. You're living in fear. You don't know when the last time it was you showered. You are already quite aware of how it is you are not living up to God's will. I read a story recently about Kate. Kate went to study abroad in France, and her boyfriend came to visit her. He surprised her. He flew from Pittsburgh to Paris to propose. And during the season Kate was living there, she struggled to say yes to this proposal because Kate had given in once again, to her long battle with an eating disorder. Whether it was living in a new country, missing home, the new studies, she was triggered in Paris and gave in once again. And she carried a deep sense of shame and she struggled to say yes to this proposal. How could he love me? How could he want to marry me with all of my flaws? So how does God bring us home when we can't get out of the front door on our journey before we've already messed it up? How can you right now have confidence if the one thing he asks from us is the one thing we can't give him? Well, the Apostle John tells us in his gospel, Jesus' disciples have gone into a neighboring village uh, to get food for them and to return. Everyone is starving. Uh, you've been there. Uh, your, your stomach is beginning to make noises. It is, it is growling at you. And these disciples are perplexed. Why is Jesus not eating the food that we have brought him? And Jesus offers these words. He says this, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus said, what I live for is to do the will of my father and to finish his work. What is the work he has come to finish? Well, it is the work and the culmination of all redemptive history in himself. Uh, to give his life for those who cannot put one foot in front of the other without tripping ourselves. You see, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was overwhelmed by the weight of this work he was to finish. The Bible tells us he staggered, he, he fell to the ground. But Jesus, in full obedience, cried out, Yet not what I will, 
but what you will. Jesus is the fulfiller of the Sermon on the Mount. There was only one who could truly live the will of the Father out on our behalf. And we see the completion of that work, the finishment of that work on the cross. One of the last statements Jesus uttered was a three-word phrase that changed all of history. Just three words. It is finished. The famous Welsh preacher, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, said that he could tell pretty quickly whether someone was a Christian or not by how they responded to the question, are you a Christian? If he asked them, hey, are you a Christian? And they said, well, I'm trying. Lloyd-Jones said, those people don't understand the gospel. It reminds me of the great scene in The Empire Strikes Back, if for all my Star Wars fans out there. Luke is learning the ways of the force. And Yoda tells him, do or do not, there is no try. Finished or not finished, but there is no try. The question for you is, do you believe it is finished? You see, most people... Uh, they repent of the bad things that they have done in their life. But Christians are also repenting of the good things that they have done. The things they've tried to do to earn God's favor. The good things that they have done to display a certain image to others. The, the things that they have done to, to, to manipulate or persuade God into giving them what they finally want after years of asking. You see, Christians repent of the really bad deeds but they also repent of their really good deeds. When we stand before God and have to give an account, will you unroll the scroll of all your accomplishments, of all your good works, or will you stand with hands open, symbolizing and signifying, I have nothing to bring God except what Christ has finished on my behalf. Those are the ones God accepts. What will you bring? If you're hoping in your good works, you haven't even set out on the Christian journey yet. But, but if you are hoping in Christ and all of his finished work, you are already home. This is the only hope that we have. This is how Kate can have hope despite her endless battle with this eating disorder. How the apostle Peter has hope even though he is self-consumed and can be a racist at times. How King David can have hope even when he is the exploiter of women and a murderer. This is how you can have hope no matter what you are facing. We can have hope, not in the things that we have done, but in the one who will to do the Father's work and finish it for us. Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us, who redeemed us, who rescued us. Do you know him? That is the only assurance we have. James Proctor wrote a wonderful hymn. 
And in the final stanza of this hymn, we read these words. Cast your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him. In him alone. Gloriously complete. Have you laid your deadly doing down? Run to Jesus. Empty handed. And find in him all that you need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, open our eyes and our hearts to see the beauty of the gospel. The finished work of Jesus for us. Enable us to lay our deadly doing down and enter in your presence through Jesus with nothing to offer in our hands, yet gloriously complete. In Jesus' name we do pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.